If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must update rewards. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 2022 is the History Extra podcast's 15th birthday. So to mark 15 years of fascinating historical conversations, we've asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they think deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime today. Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked. And some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. In today's episode, Tudor historian and the podcast host of Not Just the Tudors, Professor Susanna Lipscomb, nominates Marguerite de Navarre. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, she reveals how this royal woman, the sister of France's King Francois I, had a major influence on both the Renaissance and the Reformation. So today we're going to be talking all about Marguerite de Navarre, who you've nominated as your historical character you'd like to give 15 minutes of fame. But I believe she also goes by several other names that our listeners might know of. That's right. So Marguerite de Navarre was her final married name. Uh, So she married him in 1527, married Henri de Navarre. And she's known as that because she published under that name and she was published posthumously under that name. However, people might also know her by the name Marguerite d'Angoulême 
especially those fans of Anne Boleyn. So she was born to the Count and Countess of Angoulême. Her mother, uh, Countess of Angoulême, was Louise de Savoy. And her brother was Francis or Francois I of France, the King of France. And then there's also uh, possibly two other names by, by which you might encounter her. So she's Marguerite d'Alençon because of her first marriage to the, the Duke of d'Alençon. Um, and so she's the Duchess of Alençon. Her, her birth name is Marguerite of Angoulême, Orléans and Valois. So you even occasionally see her called Marguerite de Valois, although that's to risk confusing her with Catherine de Medici's daughter. So there's, um, there's many names, but we can go with Marguerite de Navarre, or Marguerite um, of Angoulême, and those are the most common, I suppose. Who exactly was Marguerite, and whenabouts are we talking about here? So she was born in April 1492, died in December 1549. She was the sister of the King of France, Francis or Francois I, and she and her mother, Louisa and Francois, considered themselves a little trio. She referred to them as notre trinité, our trinity. And she was a key player at his court, a key player in politics and diplomacy. Um, a recent biography has called her his queen in all but name. He was married to Claude um, in these years, these early years of his reign. But Claude was demure and diffident and poor thing for about the 10 years of she was <laughs> Married to Francois, she was pregnant seven times, and so she was almost constantly retreating from court life. Um, And in her place, Marguerite was this kind of hostess of entertainments, but also a leading figure in intellectual and religious and literary circles at the time. We often associate Francis I with bringing the Renaissance of Italy to France and you know, supporting the work of humanist scholars and inviting even Leonardo da Vinci to his court. But Marguerite is very much at his side in this. She's the one encouraging this. She's the one helping him embark on ambitious building projects that are inspired by Italian architecture. She has been called the mother of the Renaissance, and I think that we have to see her role as very much influencing Francis. She's much brighter than he is, and I think that she has a major part to play. She's also an activist. She is a never a Protestant, but she's a kind of proto-Protestant. She's a reformer. She really cares about the hypocrisy and the corruption and the abuses in the church. And she cares about people being able to make up their own minds about their faith. She acts as a kind of refuge for people of reformed faith. She influences Francis into putting people of these more humanist, reformed ideas into ecclesiastical positions. And she even intervenes for heretics. And she's a great patron as well of these people. She's a patron of Etape, who is one of the first people to write the Bible in French. And she's a patron of poets like Clément Marot, who becomes very important in influencing the Protestant movement. François Rabelais, uh, Gargantua is dedicated to her. Pierre Ronsard, these other other really important um, literary figures in France. And then the final thing to say about her, really, that I could add by the more, but in brief, is that she's a a major writer herself, a major writer of the French Renaissance. And she writes 
a book called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, which is considered heresy by the Sorbonne at the time. And it's conjectured that she passes it in manuscript to Anne Boleyn, who then must have given it or it must have passed to Elizabeth I because at the age of 11, Princess Elizabeth translated it for Catherine Parr. So there's this amazing kind of line of influence. And I want to tell you a bit more about her book of stories, The Heptameron, as well. But and, but I also finally must say that she gives birth to a daughter called Jeanne d'Abray, who becomes the spiritual and political leader of the Huguenots. And her son, Henri of Navarre, becomes Henri IV, um, Henry IV of France, the first Bourbon king. So this is a woman who is magnificently important in all sorts of ways. She seems to have had her fingers in many pies, being part of almost the Reformation and the Renaissance at the same time. Could you tell us a bit more about her writings? Yes. So her writings are largely, in terms of what was published in her lifetime, works of mystical faith, I suppose. They reflect on the nature of one's relationship with God and they are moving and very much concerned with that direct relationship with the divine. But there's also her collection of stories, the Heptameron, which was published posthumously nine years after she died. And it is a work that explores patriarchy. It explores the mistreatment of women by men. It thinks about male violence against women and also women's faults, their virtues and vices, their sexual infidelities. So, for example, the first story is called the, about the, the procurer's wife. And all of these stories, by the way, I should say, are kind of modelled on Boccaccio's Decameron. And the procurer's wife engages in adultery and murder, and so she's this kind of epitome of vice. And then the second story, we have um, the mule driver's wife, the donkey driver's wife, who is viciously attacked by a rapist and then dies a martyr's death. So and But what the key theme, I suppose, is about male violence against women. And, and recent biographers have argued, following Brantom, who was a chronicler, uh, a historian in the 16th century, whose mother and grandmother had served with Marguerite, that she was writing about her own experience. He tells that she had had a, a rape or attempted rape by... Um, uh, an elevated man, a Duke de Bonnevay, probably in around 1520 when she was in her 20s. And in the fourth story of the Heptameron, she tells that story. She starts by telling, you know, this is somebody who is a sister of a prince who is widowed and childless. And that's her because she was married for 16 years in her first marriage and didn't have a child during that time. And whilst, of course, we have to be careful in projecting biography onto literary texts, it feels very much like she's describing herself. And it's this traumatic event is so important to her that she keeps revisiting it um, in her work, in this tale and in other tales. So this, these narratives of violence by men against women, which is such a common theme of the 16th century, something that this woman, privileged though she is, is addressing at a time when female voices were few and writing as a woman was to do something very risky to one's reputation. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. Marguerite deserves her 15 minutes of fame because she was totally influential in the spreading of the Renaissance in France and from there to England, in the shaping of the Reformation, though she never became a Protestant. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. What were responses like to her and to her work at this time? She was highly loved. I mean, she was greatly admired. She was a woman of grace and charisma and charm, not conventionally beautiful, uh, intelligent, and everything that we can read about her, it seems to be a a positive response, except, of course... (laughs) from people like the Sorbonne, who considered what she was saying heretical. She hadn't had a brother who was a king. I'm sure that she would have died at the stake, actually. So it's not all good. But those who knew her report very favourably about her. And I think that there was a sense that she was extraordinarily brave. I mean, the fact that she didn't have children for the first 16 years of her you know, her first marriage, although it was very sad to her at the time, actually meant that she had the opportunity to be much more active in politics than many women at the time who were overburdened by young children. And so we see in her, I suppose, the limits of what was possible as a woman at this time. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about her role in relation to politics. And I think you mentioned earlier about diplomacy as well. Yes. So I'll give you one really important example. In 1525, Francis, her brother, was taken prisoner after the Battle of Pavia, taken prisoner by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And it is Marguerite who makes the journey to Madrid. So she travels by sea to Barcelona and then rides, we're told, 10 or 12 leagues a day, so that's 30, 35 miles a day, outstripping her entourage to get to Madrid to see Francis, who is imprisoned and is very, very ill. And she nurses him back to health. And actually there's a moment where she has had mass said in his rooms and prays, and he gets well that day. And that's obviously a, a key moment for her, that that moment of shift to to do with her faith as well. 
Um, and then she negotiates for his release. So she is the one parleying with the emperor to get him released um, and acting as this key political diplomatic figure. And I'm sure the friendship she develops with Charles's sister, Eleanor, also explains why Eleanor becomes Francis's later wife. So, I mean, she she couldn't be operating at a higher level of politics in Europe at the time. You mentioned about the religious shift, and it's kind of been a theme as we've been chatting. Could you tell us more about how religion played into her life, how religion came into her life? Yes, she has this very interesting relationship in the 1520s with a bishop uh, who is a reformed bishop and who to whom she's writing for spiritual consolation and mentorship. And she's clearly investigating a lot of the themes that are being raised by the Renaissance, the ideas of the humanists about going back to the sources and reading things in the, their original form and also removing a layer of authoritarianism or perhaps even just simply of intervention, which is what the medieval church often acts as for people. It so that sense of being able to directly communicate with God is important. And I suppose what she arrives at during this time is a kind of middle way. She never wants to leave the Roman Catholic Church, but she believes very strongly, like people like Thomas More, I suppose, and Erasmus, that reform in the church was necessary. And it's very striking that it's after her death that we see the beginnings of cycles of religious war. I'm not suggesting she herself could have held it at bay, but it's the the the, the, the embattled Protestants and, and Catholics of later 16th century France is not what we see happening in the early part of the 16th century. And Marguerite is one of those people who is helping to maintain a kind of mediation between the growing discord in the church. So my final question for you then is, why do you think Marguerite deserves her 15 minutes of fame? Marguerite deserves her 15 minutes of fame because she was totally influential in the spreading of the Renaissance in France and from there to England, in the shaping of the Reformation, though she never became a Protestant, in challenging male violence against and domination of women, in sponsoring poets and writers and reformers and intellectuals and philosophers and theologians in her own time. And as a woman who shows us, I suppose, the limits of the possible in the 16th century. That was Professor Susanna Lipscomb speaking to Emily Briffitt. Susanna is a historian, author and broadcaster who's hosted several history documentaries for television. She recently co-edited the book, What is History Now? and is also the host of the Not Just the Tudors podcast. If you're enjoying this series and would like early access to more episodes to hear more historians nominating people who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, go to historyextra.com forward slash 15 hyphen minutes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 